This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Joy Challenge. Discover the ancient secret to experiencing worry-defeating, circumstance-defying happiness. Written by pastor and best-selling author Randy Frazee and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Fellas, I'm ready to get up and do my thing. I want to get into it, man, you know. Like, I, you know I'm the man, don't you? Can I count it off? One, two, three, four. You're listening to the Church Politics Podcast with Michael Ware and Justin Gibney, where you can get in-depth political analysis from a Christian worldview. Transcend partisanship and political ideology with us as we seek true discipleship in the public square. This is the Church Politics Podcast with Michael Weir and Justin Gibney, brought to you by the AND Campaign. Uh, Justin, good to be with you for another week. We are now deep into the fall. I, I saw you were out by the pumpkin patches, just like just like our family was. It seemed like everyone was uh, doing some fall activity over the over the weekend. Hope hope you had a good time. Yeah, we were out at the Buford Corn Maze. had a had a really good time with the family. Uh, and the kids enjoyed it. They really loved all the pumpkins and the corn and the maize and all that good stuff. So yeah, it was it was a good weekend. Yeah, M- Melissa uh, loves apple cider donuts, and so we mm. went to this place maybe like an hour out. We'd never been there before, and uh, uh, stood in line for like forty five minutes to <laughs> to get some of those. And then uh, yeah, we did sort of a hayride and and. Uh, Got some pictures of Sears shop by the pumpkins. Uh, so uh, the, uh, the the bummer was they had just ended apple picking the day before, and so we were hoping to get some apples, but uh, we we missed it. But but we had a we had a good time. Uh, just that we have a great interview uh, for folks this week that we thought would be appropriate. Uh, given just the news over the last seven days from the Supreme Court hearing cases related to Title VII, religious freedom, and LGBT rights, and then uh, and, and then the conversation around tax-exempt status that came out of the uh, Democrats' town hall on LGBT issues on, on Thursday. Uh, we have Luke Goodrich from uh, Beckett, uh, and, and I'm I'm excited about that. Uh, anything you want to say before we lead folks into that conversation? No, I just really think folks are going to, to enjoy it. Obviously, we had another week, another round of political controversies. And this particular interview, I think, speaks to some of those. So it's really timely. A whole range of news over the last week, which we'll uh, be able to, to cover in uh, future episodes. We did think this would be a good week to have Luke Goodrich on. Uh, to help break down and help help you learn more about the contours of these issues. Uh, Luke Goodrich is the author of Free to Believe, The Battle Over Religious Liberty in America, and he's vice president and senior counsel at the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty. Uh, Goodrich teaches uh, an advanced course in constitutional law at the University of Utah Law School, and he lives in Utah where he enjoys exploring the outdoors with his wife and children and serving in their local church. I think folks are really going to enjoy this interview with Luke, who's been working on a religious freedom for the last decade uh, and also has has a word to share about how we as Christians should consider these issues. Uh, and so without further ado, here's uh, our conversation with Luke Goodrich uh, from Beckett. 
All right, you're listening to the Church Politics Podcast, and uh, Justin and I are excited to have on as a guest this week, Luke uh, Goodrich from uh, the Beckett Fund. Uh, uh, Luke is Vice President and Senior Counsel at Beckett. Luke, thanks so much for joining. Thanks so much for having me. It's uh, it's great to have you on. This week in particular, Luke, there's been uh, religious freedom has been in the news. Before we jump in, we said a little bit before uh, in our introduction segment of you, but if you wouldn't mind, just tell folks a, a little bit about, about Beckett and the, the work y'all do there. Sure. Thanks. Beckett is the nation's only law firm dedicated exclusively to protecting religious freedom and doing it for people of all faiths. So we've been uh, in existence for 25 years. We have a 90% win rate across all of our cases and really just try to bring high-profile, precedent-setting cases that will protect people of all faiths and set important precedents. Yeah, I mean, so for folks listening, almost any religious freedom case that has been in the news that's risen to the level of sort of national uh, uh, prominence, uh, Beckett has been involved. Were you all involved in the Abercrombie case? Yeah, we were. We filed a friend in the court brief there. We also uh, won the Holt versus Hobbs case. It's That's the right. only Supreme Court case that uh, resulted in a victory for a, for Muslim religious freedom. We represented a Muslim prisoner who wanted to grow a half inch beard. Uh, we had we've won we've won five Supreme Court cases in the last seven years, and so wow, you know that's incredible. The, yeah, you know, the high-profile ones for Hobby Lobby and Little Sisters of the Poor, uh, but also for the Muslim prisoner in prison inmate and and for church uh, religious freedom. Yeah, and, and you all, in addition to yourself, uh, you all have just an amazing team between Bill and Monsi. Uh, it's it's such a dream team over there. So we're, we're glad to have you on, but let's, let's sort of uh, jump in. I know you've been paying close attention to the Title VII cases uh, that were heard. The oral arguments were held this past week uh, in the Supreme Court. Can you tell our listeners sort of what are the basics of the case? What is the import of uh, how the Supreme Court decides here? Yeah, so these are hugely important cases. There are actually three of them that have been joined together at the Supreme Court. And the central issue is how do how does how are the courts going to interpret federal employment discrimination laws? So th- these are the laws that prohibit discrimination based on sexual uh, sex and race and religion. And the question in these cases is whether they also prohibit discrimination based on sexual orientation or gender identity. And for the last fifty years, courts have generally said no, they don't. But in recent years, there's been a push to expand the interpretation of Title VII to protect LGBT employees. Sort of based on oral arguments, can you can you tell us kind of how did it uh, how did it seem to to play out? So, sort of, I mean, right that the the basic idea here is whether because sex is covered in uh, in the Civil Rights Act whether sexual orientation is sort of a subcategory of sex discrimination. So, right. So the, those yeah. who, be, those who believe that, uh, that sexual orientation should basically be read into the civil rights act are, are arguing that, well, if you're judging if, if there's, 
uh, decision involved based on sexual orientation. Uh, uh, sexual orientation uh, is is determined is 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 a category of sex discrimination because you 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 can only discriminate because you're sort of recognizing that it's uh, a, a same sex partnership. Um, and, and so, uh, kind of that's in some ways a textualist argument. Um, I know some of the reports said uh, it seemed like the court was fairly split, but Gorsuch seemed to be the most open to this argument. Do you think it's it's possible uh, that the Supreme Court kind of uh, that the Supreme Court takes another big step? Just you know, just you know, I guess four years after Obergefell. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly a possibility, and, and you summarize the arguments well, but maybe the most interesting thing about the case is there are textual ar- textualist arguments on both sides. So you know, the, the LGBT plaintiffs argue that, you, you know, if a, an employer fires males who are attracted to males, uh, but doesn't fire females who are attracted to males, then they've mm. taken the employee's sex into account, right. and discriminated right, right, right. based on sex. Uh, so that's the plaintiff's argument. And then in response, the employers in the federal government also have a textualist argument. They say, hey, you're not discriminating based on sex merely by taking sex into account. Like when you have sex-specific bathrooms and you say men have to use one, women have to use the other. Like You've taken sex into account, but they both have bathrooms and you're not discriminating. Uh, mm. And so they would say, you know, if you fire a male who's attracted to males – and you attract, you fire a female who's attracted to females, you've disadvantaged uh, LGBT employees compared with straight employees. So that's discrimination right. based right, on right, sexual right. orientation. But you haven't disadvantaged females compared with males or vice versa. So you haven't discriminated based on sex. So those are the textualist arguments on both yeah. sides. You know, I think it's shaping up to be a closely divided case. And, and there were some media accounts suggesting that Gorsuch – Gorsuch's vote was in play. I think they kind of overread him a bit. And I, you know, I think if you look closely at the transcript, there's an argument that maybe even Justice Ginsburg is in play because of what this could do to women under Title VII over the long term. But it's, you know, it's always hard to tell based on these sorts of oral argument tea leaves. Yeah. The last question I have on the Title VII cases is just explain a a bit more about like why this is important for religious institutions in particular, like what would the consequences be if rather than protecting LGBT civil rights via a legislative compromise and sort of negotiation, uh, what would the consequences be if the court were just to say, actually, it's already covered, it's it's there embedded in the Civil Rights Act and now sort of everyone has to sort of adjust accordingly? <laughs> Yeah, that's a that's a hugely important question. And that was the main focus of our friend of the court brief at the Beckett Fund. So the issue for religious organizations is that there are tens of thousands of religious organizations all across the country that have longstanding beliefs about human sexuality, and they often expect their employees to live in accordance with those beliefs. So they may expect their employees to refrain from sex outside traditional male-female marriage or they may expect their employees to live and present in accordance with their biological sex. So if the Supreme Court significantly expands the interpretation of Title VII and all of a sudden rules 
that sexual orientation and gender identity are protected classes under the statute, then all of a sudden, all of those religious organizations are suddenly exposed to new lawsuits and new potential liability. So, you know, our argument to the court was there are actually 22 states plus the District of Columbia that have already broadened their employment discrimination laws in precisely the way the plaintiffs are asking for here to cover sexual orientation and gender identity. And in all 23 of those jurisdictions, the legislatures also coupled those protections for LGBT employees with protections for religious organizations, with religious exemptions. And so our argument is to the court, like, hey, you should actually give Congress an opportunity to weigh this issue because Congress can strike a balance between expanding protections for LGBTQ employees and protecting religious liberty. So that's what we've asked the court to do. Thanks, Luke. That's helpful. Uh, One other question I have, uh, not specifically about the cases, but just uh, kind of, I guess, the implications of the cases to some extent is how do you how do you think about the interplay between the court and culture? Right. Uh, The court, uh, some would say, sometimes gets out ahead of the culture uh, and changes culture uh, by its rulings. Some would have a problem with that. On the other side, some would say, well, the court is supposed to do that. It's a good thing when the court gets out ahead of the culture. If the culture is wrong, uh, the court should interpret it in uh, the Constitution to kind of correct culture. How do you think about that interplay and, and what do you think the balance should be? Yeah, I think sometimes it's a good thing for the court to get out ahead of the culture and sometimes it's a bad thing. And where it's going to matter here is if the court does get way ahead of the of the culture, at least conservative Christian culture on human sexuality, it basically gives an argument to governments across the country that traditional religious beliefs in human sexuality are a form of bigotry or, you know, Uh, an immoral belief to hold and something that the government should actually have a policy to stamp out. And I I think we're going to get to uh, Beto O'Rourke's comments on tax exempt status, but that's, that's really where I've seen a lot of folks in the legal Academy and in the court trying to push the argument is to analogize traditional religious beliefs on human sexuality to racism. And then take all the power, all the tools the government has been given to stamp out racism, which is a good thing, and turn all those tools to traditional Christian religious beliefs and stamp those out as well, which I think would be a a terrible thing and would create massive social upheaval. Yeah, no, that's that's a very good point. Um, So as the cultural conversation goes forward and also the courts move forward, what what do you see trending? I think a lot of people feel culturally uh, the trend may be going against, um, you know, uh, more people with more conservative or traditional views. Where do you see the court when you look at these cases as a whole? Where do you see the court moving in those decisions? Which direction do you see that moving? Yeah, so. I think it's important to separate out the Supreme Court from all the lower courts because the vast majority of these issues are decided in the lower courts and only a fraction of them get up to the Supreme Court. Uh, At the Supreme Court level, so far, so good. I mean, we've had, there was the Masterpiece Cake Shop decision where the Supreme Court ruled in favor of a baker who declined to create a custom cake for a same-sex wedding. And in the lower courts, we've seen a couple recent decisions that were good as well. At Beckett, we're representing some religious adoption and foster care agencies 
that recruit families to provide loving homes for children who, who lack them. And there are a couple uh, local jurisdictions that have tried to shut these religious adoption and foster care agencies down uh, because they don't place children with same-sex couples. They don't stop same-sex couples from adopting because there are dozens of other agencies that will help them do that. Uh, but these jurisdictions say, hey, if you won't place children yourselves with same-sex couples, we're going to shut you down. Uh, one of those cases we recently won, it was the first win in the country on these cases in Michigan. Uh, but another case we recently uh, lost on this issue out of Philadelphia, and we've asked the Supreme Court to hear that case. Uh, so as far as a big picture trend goes, I think you're going to continue to see in state and local jurisdictions, particularly uh, attempts here and there to punish religious organizations that hold traditional beliefs on human sexuality. And I think in the courtroom, you're going to get a mix of results. It'll, it'll often depend on what jurisdiction you're in, uh, the makeup of the court. Uh, but if these issues ultimately get up to the Supreme Court, I think there's a lot of precedent and a lot of momentum to ultimately protect religious organizations. Okay, one more thing. Obviously, on the on the left, there's there's some anxiety about the court leaning to the right, and so you hear these conversations about what's called court packing. Can you talk to us a little about a bit about that and, and what it means and what the you know what the uh, consequences could be? Yeah, I think as several of the Democratic presidential candidates have floated the idea of court packing, which would be basically adding new seats to the Supreme Court with the anticipation that a Democratic uh, president could then appoint new justices and uh, balance out the court, at least from the, from the perspective of the progressive view. Uh, I think the, the counter argument to that is just court packing is extremely rare, uh, hasn't been done since the 30s, and that it's deeply uh, detrimental to our democratic system. And so, you know, it, it would kind of open the door to a tit for tat over time with just everybody using every lever in their in their power to undermine the legitimacy of the Supreme Court and, and shift it their way. Thank you. It almost seems as if, you know, both sides might even consider it, uh, depending on how, how far uh, they think the balance has gotten out of hand. But I appreciate that uh, back and forth. Yeah, for sure. Let's let's move on to something you raised, Luke, which is uh, on last Thursday, uh, Democrats uh, in partnership with CNN and the Human Rights Campaign held an LGBT town hall. And uh, a lot of issues were discussed. I think a lot of important ground was covered, combating HIV, AIDS, mental health issues. Uh, we also heard a great deal about these civil rights protections, which are also important. Most of the candidates, actually all of the candidates uh, uh, who were asked, suggested that they hope the Supreme Court uh, uh, does affirm that Title VII already covers sexual orientation. Uh, and so so it's important for folks listening to be aware of that. If If not, uh, they are all in support of a piece of legislation called the Equality Act, and maybe we could talk a bit about that. The big news coming out of the town hall, or at least what's what started a lot of conversation, was Beto O'Rourke was asked about tax exemption status, and he responded that uh, he would revoke tax exempt status from religious institutions, charities. And, you know, according to the question, and his team had multiple uh, 
sort of uh, opportunities to clarify in this way, and and they did not. Uh, he he uh, opened the door uh, to removing t- tax exempt. Well, I shouldn't even say open the door. He said he supported removing tax exempt status from churches as well that held what he views as the wrong view on sexual orientation. He he added something along the lines of uh, no privilege, no benefit should be extended uh, to organizations that, that have this, this view. Um, There's a lot to unpack there, Luke, but let's, let's go to sort of the um, let's go to the principle uh, of the argument that you hear from folks who say this, which is that, sort of tax-exempt status is a violation of uh, the separation of church and state. What would you say to that? How would you advise our listeners to think about the separation of church and state? The Supreme Court back in 1970, in a case called Walls, uh, ruled seven to one that tax exemptions for churches are not a violation of the separation of church and state. And the reasoning of the decision is that tax exemption actually furthers the separation of church and state because it keeps the government and the tax man out of the pockets of churches. And you see a variety of different tax exemptions that churches receive. I I recently argued a case in the Seventh Circuit involving uh, tax-exempt housing allowances for ministers, uh, which is a, a hugely important uh, feature of the tax code for churches across the country. There's almost a billion dollars a year at stake. And again, it was the same argument saying, hey, these tax exemptions, this is a violation of separation of church and state. Uh, but our argument with with which the court agreed is that these tax exemptions actually further separation of church and state because otherwise the government would have to go into, you know, look at how the ministers use their homes. Are you really using your home for the sake of the church? How much should we tax you? How often do you prepare your sermons in the homes? And so inviting the IRS to tax churches actually results in more entanglement of church and state rather than less. And so that's why courts have consistently upheld these kinds of tax exemptions. Right. And, and, you know, just the uh, uh, I've heard from some folks, well, you know, that uh, until churches are taxed, the government will always be able to hold this over their head and sort of keep them in line. And I, I, I just point out to folks, uh, no, once churches are taxed, then the rate at which they're taxed will be a campaign issue every every two, four years. So this idea that uh, tax-exempt status is some sort of uh, – the, 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 the fact of the matter is the government has leverage points no matter which way we look at it, if they choose to make them leverage points on the church, I I think what we should be looking for is uh, holding the government accountable, not to hold the guillotine over the church's head, not to sort of think that government power should be used to to influence theological uh, and ecclesial decisions uh, within within churches or any other religious community. Luke, to, to, to cover this from a bit of a, a different angle, part of this goes into, you know, a broader discussion about sort of, I think, trailing off, uh, like you raised before, sort of the Civil Rights Act and the extreme and necessary measures that were necessary to confront and still are necessary to confront, in my view, uh, racism in this country. But that really opened up 
pretty extraordinary lever. So, for instance, uh, uh, there's something over at Department of Justice called preclearance, which basically means that DOJ uh, has the authority to refuse to recognize or to stop voting rights laws that come out of the Jim Crow South because of the history of voter disenfranchisement uh, out of the South. But there's now increasing talks about using those kinds of tactics on an array of other issues. And so I guess, I guess my, my question to you, which is not all that dissimilar from from Justin's, but just to take it into this uh, this conversation about tax exempt status and and sort of more on the legislative side, which is how do we decide what levers uh, are uh, appropriate for uh, for advocating for an agenda and 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 where should religious freedom sort of stop? Uh, where should religious freedom come in and sort of take certain levers? Uh, and instruments off off the table. As I ask this question out loud, let me let me ask it in a different way. Uh, many of the presidential candidates have come out with policies regarding uh, LGBT civil rights that uh, say that religious freedom is important, but uh, but uh, religious freedom should never be an excuse to discriminate. By which they seem to mean. If religious freedom ever comes into contact with LGBT rights, uh, uh, LGBT rights should win. How should we think about that tension? And and do you think that that, that sort of approach is is feasible and right? Yeah. So there's a kernel of truth in the, the Democratic candidates' arguments on that, which is that religious freedom is not an unbounded right. There are, there are limits on every right. Uh, but where they go wrong is the idea that any time that a right is at all costly, any time religious freedom is in any way costly for society, therefore it should be uh, rejected. And we don't treat any constitutional right that way. Like the right of free speech, it imposes costs on people all the time. You know, you can say false things about people that harm their reputation. Uh, and you can't necessarily always get sued for defamation or things like that. And the Fourth Amendment, protection against search and seizure repeatedly lets criminals go free uh, simply because the police didn't follow all the proper Fourth Amendment procedures. You can go down the whole list of constitutional rights and they all impose costs and religious freedom imposes costs. I mean, take the, the quintessential example of a religious freedom right, which is the freedom of conscientious objection from military service, with the, which the Quakers won at great cost you know, during our our nation's history, it imposes a huge cost when you allow somebody, you know, especially in the colonial militia to say, you know what, I'm not going to serve because God won't allow me to take human life. That imposes huge costs on the next person who has to serve in their place. Uh, or even the take the ministerial exception. This is a nine to zero uh, Supreme Court case that we won right. in 2012. Hosanna Tabor, right? Yeah, Hosanna Tabor. It, it says that when a church uh, fires a minister, you know, the pastor, priest, or rabbi, uh, that pastor, priest, or rabbi can't sue to get their job back, even under anti-discrimination laws. And the court nine to zero said, look, churches just have to be free to choose their leaders uh, without government interference. And that's a hugely costly right. I mean, the, the employee, the pastor is suing, alleging he was discriminated against. So the the kind of democratic candidates talking point that, well, you can't you know, religious freedom can't be used to discriminate. I mean, it's just 
false as a as a descriptive matter. There are nine to zero cases saying you can do that. So it really fails to grapple with how you sort out the lines on religious freedom. Yeah, I I have one or two more questions for you, but but Justin, uh, do, do you have do you have anything you want to follow up on when it when it comes to uh, the the debate we've seen over the last few days? I do, I do. So we heard we heard uh, Beto O'Rourke's uh, statement about uh, this matter. It was followed up with a probably a more thoughtful uh, statement from uh, Pete Buttigieg, uh, Mayor Pete Buttigieg, who said that he thought it was problematic. Uh, that you, you know, we would consider taking away a church's uh, nonprofit status because of their beliefs, even if those beliefs were, were different. And I, I know a lot of people were glad that somebody stepped up and said that. So that was a good thing. One thing I noticed, though, is that he did make a distinction kind of between the place of worship and other religious institutions, almost as if um, the, the protection ends in the church or the mosque. Can you talk to us a little bit about the problem with making that distinction and kind of having, you know, an exemption for the places of worship, but maybe not a, a college or a hospital? Yeah. So the, the background to Beto and, and Buttigieg's statement is a is a case from the 1970s called called Bob Jones University versus United States. And in, in 1970, the IRS decided to strip the tax-exempt status of Bob Jones University, which was a religious university, because of its policy prohibiting interracial marriage and dating. And Bob Jones tried to fight that decision, took it all the way up to the Supreme Court, arguing, hey, it's a violation of religious freedom to strip our tax-exempt status in this way. And the Supreme Court ruled against Bob Jones University and said, our nation has a tragic history of uh, racism, particularly in higher education, that has had devastating effects on the African-American community. And it's against public policy to give tax breaks to an institution that discriminates in that way. So that, that's an extremely important Supreme Court case that's sitting in the, in the background as the backdrop for what Beto said uh, and what Buttigieg said. And the basic argument that progressive law professors have been making for decades and are now being picked up by progressive politicians is an analogy to gay between racism and gay rights and to say, hey, just like we have a pub public policy against race discrimination, we have a public policy against sexual orientation discrimination. So if you are a religious college or university uh, like my alma mater Wheaton College and you tell students you're not allowed to engage in same-sex sexual conduct, well, you're just as bad as Bob Jones University, and the IRS should strip your tax-exempt status, too. So that's kind of the logic of the position. And I, I address this at length in, in my book, why that analogy to race discrimination in the law fails. Uh, and if I could briefly just kind of summarize that, the reason is uh, race is treated very differently in our law, in our discrimination laws, uh, mainly because of our uniquely tragic history of race discrimination. Over 300 years of slavery based on race, civil war based on race, government-imposed segregation based on race, and, and that resulted in systematic and pervasive barriers uh, for African Americans to participate fully in the economic, social, and political life of our community. So because of that unique history, the government has been given powerful tools to dismantle racism and tools not given to the government for any other form of discrimination, including discrimination based on sex, religion, age, marital status, disability, and so forth. 
Uh, so you see that reflected in our laws. Uh, just one example, all 50 states ban race discrimination in employment, and religious groups are not exempt from that. Uh, by contrast, only 23 states ban uh, employment discrimination based on sexual orientation, and all 23 of those states have religious exemptions. So the basic idea underlying this is that different kinds of discrimination get warrant different legal treatment, uh, and sexual orientation discrimination gets treated much more like sex or marital status discrimination than it gets treated like race discrimination. Uh, and then lastly, if you look at how the Supreme Court has treated this, the 1967 Loving decision, uh, which struck down state bans on interracial marriage, uh, treated those bans and the belief underlying them as an invidious relic of white supremacy. And rightly so. The court like, condemned the beliefs underlying the ban on interracial marriage. But in the 2015 Obergefell decision, where the court uh, recognized same-sex marriage, uh, the court said that belief in traditional marriage, the, the traditional marriage laws are based on, quote, decent and honorable religious or philosophical premises uh, that are entitled to appropriate protection. So even the Supreme Court has recognized that beliefs, uh, beliefs supporting uh, racism are far different from beliefs supporting traditional marriage. And I, th I think over the long term, that is going to be reflected in our law. Do you see what are the arguments that you hear? Because it's one thing for Buddhists to talk about the mosque and the church to make a distinction between that and the hospital and the colleges. What argument are you hearing that for that? Are, is there precedent behind that? Uh, can you can you dig into that a little more? Yeah, there are certainly unique protections for houses of worship. Um, in the tax code, and you know they they get treated differently under the First Amendment, um, but there's certainly no sharp distinction between houses of worship and all other religious entities for purposes of religious freedom. So really, it comes down to the the particular context that a conflict arises in. Uh, and I I go back again to our our case right now on behalf of religious ministries that uh, foster care and adoption uh, ministries. These are nonprofit organizations. They're not for-profit businesses. And yet there are government entities trying to shut them down. They, you know, they've been doing this for over 100 years, uh, well before the government itself was doing anything to care for orphans and, and foster children. And yet the government is trying to shut them down. Uh, and there, there are plenty of cases uh, uh, laying down precedent for protecting the religious freedom of religious organizations, uh, including nonprofits, including hospitals. Um, and so there's really no ground for just singling out churches and saying, you know, religious freedom has to be kept within the four walls of the church. Yeah, sure. Luke, just a couple more questions for you. Uh, first, you mentioned your your book, Free to Believe, and we're, we're excited about this book. Glad that you were uh, able to, to write it. Think that there's so much uh, here that folks can learn from and that will help people with their thinking through some of the pressing religious freedom challenges of our day, would love for you to just tell folks a bit about what motivated you to write the book and what you hope folks get out of it. Yeah. So I've been working in the field of religious freedom for over a decade at Beckett. Uh, and what I've seen over time is that a lot of Christians approach religious freedom primarily as a political issue or a legal issue uh, before they think about it as a biblical issue. And I see a lot of Christians who, when you, if you were asking, why does religious freedom matter? They would say, well, 
it's in our constitution. And we are a Judeo-Christian nation. This is part of our heritage. And religious freedom matters because it keeps the door open for the spread of the gospel. And so it basically, uh, this mindset treats religious freedom primarily as a political tool for maintaining a privileged place for Christianity in society. And, you know, there, there's, there's some truth in the position. I mean, it's important to keep the door open for the spread of the gospel. Uh, but my argument in the book is that if we actually look at Scripture, if we start with Scripture, uh, religious freedom is much more than merely a tool for maintaining a privileged place for Christianity in society. It's actually a basic issue of biblical justice rooted in the nature of God and the nature of man. Uh, so in my book, I try to uh, tease that out by looking at scripture. Uh, and then I look at what are the top religious freedom conflicts that the church is going to be facing in the coming years and kind of apply that understanding of religious freedom to those conflicts that we're going to be facing. Uh, and then lastly, I, I close with a section on practical advice, just as Christians, given the new reality that we're facing, the religious freedom conflicts that are going to come, how do we live out our faith? Uh, how do we confront these conflicts with joy in light of the gospel uh, rather than our traditional or our common posture of just fear, anger, hostility uh, that's rooted in trying to simply preserve our own rights? So basically trying to help Christians think a different way about religious freedom. Which... <laughs> I, I, I just uh, love this idea, Luke, and I'm so glad that you wrote the book. Too much of the religious freedom conversation. I think you're you're right. It, it's it's a lot about sort of uh, some of the language around it is about sort of status and tradition, and the way that gets filtered through our political system is it actually ends up being pretty parochial and uh, pretty uh, polarizing and pretty tribal, uh, even if it sort of puts on the pretenses of uh, sort of being sort of faith forward or sort of uh, there's a lot of sort of religious language that you could put around to to prop up that idea. But your idea that if we're actually going to respect religious freedom as something that's God-given and, uh, you know, what, you know, sort of imp- political philosophy with, you know, a sort of pre-political uh, right, then uh, then that'll change the way that we discuss it. It'll change the circumstances in which we apply religious freedom. If religious freedom is something God gives and is not just sort of something to, to protect our own religious tradition, then that means that actually the Christian God may have, may place a greater obligation on us to protect the religious freedom of others than we might, than we might otherwise think. Uh, so I, I think that's really important. What would urge people to, to pick up your book. Luke, the last question I have for you is, as you alluded to, much of what you just said, I, I think is right. Sounds wonderful. It, it certainly, and I'm assuming this is why he wrote the book, that <laughs> uh, doesn't seem to characterize much of the religious freedom conversation today. And so uh, the last question I have for you is just, what is your prognosis? What is your diagnosis uh, of the state of pluralism in a country that to many folks seems fractured and difficult to to reconcile these disparate sort of forces and ideas do you think that america still has the the potential of e pluribus unum yeah i mean that's such a huge question i i look at it on on two different levels in the book um number one just if we a lot of christians 
are using a lot of gloom and doom rhetoric right now, uh, rooted in fear about how bad things are and how bad things are going to get. Uh, and you know, Jesus said in the book of John, in this world, you will have trouble. And I, I think we should be realistic about our, our state. Um, but if you, you know, there are also reasons for optimism. When you look at our legal system, when you look at uh, the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court has consistently protected religious freedom over the last 15 years. There's really only one problematic decision, uh, Christian Legal Society versus Martinez involving religious student groups, but already that decision is being eroded in the lower courts, and I don't think it will last very long. Hmm. So, you know, we have a stable legal system. We have a strong constitutional guarantee and tradition of protecting religious freedom. And we have a lot of decisions that are currently backing that up. So I think there's, there's a lot of grounds for Christians to have hope. Uh, but I also point out that, you know, whether we live in, we're, we're called to have hope whether we live in North America or North Africa. And we're called to a hope that's based not primarily on the outcome of the next election, uh, who's holding political office, or whether we have a majority of justices on the Supreme Court. We have to have a hope that's rooted much more deeply than that. And you know, when Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble, he also said, take heart, I have overcome the world. And so ultimately, we need a hope that is rooted in the person of Jesus Christ, the victory that he has already gained. And whether, you know, no matter the outcome of the next election, no matter the composition of the Supreme Court, uh, we as Christians have available to us a hope that is rooted in something deeper than that. And we need to approach the issue of religious freedom uh, from that position of hope and joy. Uh, we need to approach every political issue from that uh, posture of hope and joy, because that's something we are called as Christians to offer to the world. So, you know, I, I think there's, uh, ultimately, I think we should have a much more optimistic posture, even as things get increasingly difficult in our society. Wow, that's good. And I, and I hesitate to ask one more question after that, but I do think this question allows the same aspirational tone. So I'll go for it. You You mentioned earlier that the Beckett Fund had actually defended uh, some Muslim, uh, some Muslims in court as well. Talk about the importance, and we can end on this note, the importance of not thinking of religious liberty as just a Christian protection, but understanding that it protects other faith groups as well. Yeah. So I, you know, I do a lot of speaking to very conservative Christians who are skeptical of protect, protecting religious liberty for people of other faiths. And I try to offer three different arguments for why we need to protect religious freedom for uh, those with whom we disagree. I think of them as a good, better, and best uh, reasons. So the, where I start is with an argument from self-interest, that protecting religious freedom for Muslims and other religious minorities helps protect religious freedom for Christians. Like even if you're only looking out for yourself, it's just smart to protect religious freedom for others. And the example I use is, you know, for conservative Christians is in the Hobby Lobby case, uh, which was the uh, business owners who didn't want to provide abortion inducing drugs in their health insurance plans. When we won that case at the 10th Circuit Court of Appeals, the number one precedent that that court relied on was a case involving a Muslim prisoner who wanted to eat a halal diet in prison. And the court said, just like the government forced that prisoner to choose between his faith 
and eating, the government is forcing Hobby Lobby to choose between their faith and multi-million dollar fines. So we need to protect Hobby Lobby too. So I, I start by telling Christians, look, even if you only care about yourself, uh, you should still care about religious freedom for others. Uh, a better, the second reason I give, which is a better reason, is that protecting religious freedom for non-Christians actually helps more non-Christians come to Christ. You know, as Christians, we believe that the gospel is true and that Jesus is the only way to heaven. Uh, and so, but the only way people can come to Christ is through a voluntary act of conscience and will. We can't force people to come to Christ by shutting down their mosque or denying their right to wear a hijab. And by actually protecting religious freedom for Muslims and other minorities, I've had tremendous opportunities to share the gospel and point them to a better way. So we should care about religious freedom uh, also as a means of enabling more people to embrace the truth. Uh, but then the last argument I give, which I think is the best and most important, is that religious freedom really is a basic issue of biblical justice uh, rooted in the nature of God and the nature of man. And what that means is, you know, we are all created with a thirst for the transcendent. You can find that in scripture where it says God has placed eternity in the hearts of men. Uh, you can find it just in philosophy, the fact that we all thirst for truth, goodness, and beauty, and we all thirst for transcendent truth. You know, that's part of what it means to be a human being, and we're given a conscience. Uh, but we can only embrace the truth authentically if we embrace it freely. So when the government uh, steps in between the uh, human being and God and interferes in that relationship between a human being and God, uh, the government is violating who we are as human beings and violating a fundamental human right. Uh, so at, at the end of the day, we protect religious freedom for people of all faiths because it's written into the DNA of who we are as human beings, that the government should not force people into or out of a relationship with God. Luke, that's that's incredible. Folks, if, if, uh, uh, if you have the opportunity, get Luke Goodrich's book, uh, Free to Believe, available uh, everywhere books are sold, right, Luke? That's right. Everywhere books are sold. You can also go to LukeGoodrich.com where I have links for all the different booksellers uh, and further background on me and my cases. All right. Hey, that's wonderful. Luke, can't thank you enough for joining us, helping to unpack some of the news from the last week on religious freedom issues. And, uh, and, and, uh, you know, honestly for, uh, taking us to church a little bit, that was, that was, <laughs> that was good. We, 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 we needed that word. So thank you very much. Hope to have you on, uh, in the future as religious freedom cases and issues, uh, percolate to the, 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 the top of the national conversation. Uh, uh, folks, Luke Goodrich, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Michael and Justin. It was a pleasure. Well, Justin, I so appreciated that conversation uh, with Luke helped us uh, really 
uh, uh, break down and help me to understand uh, in a bit more detail everything that transpired, particularly at the Supreme Court uh, last week. So uh, I, I'm so grateful to him for the work he's doing. That was great. You can tell he was pa- he's passionate about it. He got fired up and these folks are doing a lot of good work. So check out the Beckett Fund, that all the things they do. You know, it is important that all religions, as we discussed, have protection uh, from kind of some of these intrusions. And so the people who who have made this their life's work, man, I really appreciate them. Yeah, folks, I think that conversation gives you enough to unpack and dig through. You might want to listen to uh, the interview a second time just to, you know, make sure you're, you're catching everything. We're going to stay up on how the Supreme Court case moves forward and definitely on how the conversation around tax-exempt status and religious freedom unfolds in the Democratic primary. Uh, Justin, any closing words before we we, uh, sign off for this episode? Yes, two things. Number one, uh, also with the AND campaign and the work that we're doing, if you like the work, if you like this podcast, please consider supporting what we're doing. We're in the middle of a a fundraising effort right now that folks are putting a lot of work into, but none of the stuff we do is free. And so we want to make sure that we can continue to uh, provide you with with all of this content and, and really get into the advocacy. So please consider uh, really consider supporting the and campaign. And lastly, I would say keep your eyes peeled on the and campaign in this next upcoming week or so. Uh, we have some things to say and some efforts coming up that I think you will appreciate. So check us out. So just uh, for those donations, you can go to amcampaign.org slash support. And also you could feel free to dig uh, to, to search around the website uh, as well at amcampaign.org. We, we really appreciate uh, your support. It's what's needed to fuel the work that we have uh, lying ahead of us over the coming weeks and months. And so I'll just second what you said, Justin, and express appreciation once again for you, our listeners feel free to send us feedback. We want to know what you're thinking and we'll be back next week with the church politics podcast. Have a great week. This is the groove. Tell me, can you handle it? I'm schooled in the ways of runaway slaves. I'm brave. I'm unchained. I'm Frederick Douglass with a fame. This episode was brought to you in part by United We Pray. United We Pray is a podcast devoted to praying and thinking about racial strife, especially between Christians. Come join us in praying for the unity of God's people.